his first Sunday, so Bishop is going to need his official garments, extra mics to pass to the elders, and I'm going to need to double up on these snacks for this extra long service. Grab your Bible, your tithes, a light snack you can hide in your pocket or your purse, and put on your dancing shoes. Y'all are coming with me to a Pentecostal service today. Before service begins, let me tell you this. I was raised by my devout Pentecostal grandmother who groomed me to be a pastor. Before I could even learn to read, I learned to pray and plead the blood of Jesus. And while I've been raised in the church all my life, I've never been able to bring my full self to the altar. But today that changed through this conversation. I've always understood, Tony, that, you know, good, good preaching, a good pastor, a good prophetic preaching, is having the Bible in one hand and having a newspaper in the other and not allowing the newspaper to determine the Bible, but, but allowing the Bible to understand how it is to address what is going on in the newspaper. Back when Donald Trump had first been elected, you could say I was attending two different churches. You see, I was going to a predominantly white church in Buckhead, but I was also listening and keeping up with Bishop T.D. Jakes because there's simply nothing like a black church. And it was akin to the theology I grew up with. At some point, what I was hearing at one church was strikingly different than what I was hearing at the other one. The difference was basically two things, politics and race. On the one hand, the evangelical church was saying, God is coming back into the White House. While the black church, I was hearing that God was leaving the White House. So now I'm left conflicted, wondering how is it that we have this split in thought when we are following the same God? That's what spurred my conversation with Bishop. Who is the democratic God? And what are his core values? Who does he work for? Um, there was a, a, an obscure passage um, in the book of Joshua where an angel of the Lord, the commander of the Lord's host, um, confronts Joshua right before they go um, into the conquering of Jericho. And Joshua asks the angel a question, angel of the Lord, a question, whose side are you on? And that angel of the Lord said, I'm not on your side. I'm not on their side. I'm on the side. I'm on the Lord's side. I am on the side of whatever God wants. If you choose what God wants, I am on your side. If you don't. The problem with that, that particular statement is that everybody thinks that God is on their side. And, and when you think that, you, we try to manipulate people, uh, their fears, their insecurities, their, their preconceived notions, their perceptions of others. We have to otherize other people to make them the devil, right? And so one of the problems that I do have with even the iteration of the God is coming into the White House and God is leaving the White House, the problem that I have with those particular iterations is that God is neither. He's not leaving or coming. He is. And whatever iteration rests upon his shoulders. So there is no government except he allows there to be government, right? And so a lot of times we, we say things that, that is of God when it's not God, it is the God of men. It's men being their own God and then trying to apply God to their own decisions and their own choices so that they can have some level of ascribed divinity to their, to their choices. Let's take a deeper look at the passage in the book of Joshua. If you have your Bibles or your mobile Bible app, we're going to read chapter 5, verse 13 through 15. And this is what it said. And then this, while Joshua was there near Jericho, 
He looked up and saw right in front of him a man standing, holding a drawn sword. Joshua stepped up to him and said, whose side are you on, ours or our enemies? He said, neither. I'm commander of God's army. I just arrived. Joshua fell face to the ground and worshiped. He asked, what orders do my master have for his servant? And verse 15, God's army commander ordered Joshua, take your sandals off your feet. The place you are standing is holy. Joshua did it. So I did a little digging to really understand what the passage was trying to convey. And I think the first thing is just to really understand the position that Joshua was in. The army of Israel was just beginning a hard conflict under an untried leader. I think we've all sort of been there before. Behind them, the Jordan bared their retreat. In front of them, Jericho forbade their advance. And most of them had never been in this situation before. They'd never seen a fortified city. All the pastors around me always talked about Joshua taking off his sandals and bowing down because the ground he's standing on is holy. I've heard that preached several times. What is unfamiliar is the context of how God actually reconciles us back to him. In the context of winning, we are often having two or more people who are actually in conflict and one bears out over the other. In this particular situation, we understand how God allows us to actually win. And it's not by actually choosing the options before us, but actually neglecting them and choosing him. All of this reminds me of sort of the wisdom my grandmother was teaching me when I was barely old enough to understand. She would say a lot of things that over time, as I met people, new contexts and situations, those moments and those words begin to resurrect themselves to offering a new level of understanding. She was a black religious woman who lived in a shack. You can stand at the front door and look out the back. There was barely anything there. Storms should have actually blown this house over dozens of times. But I saw my grandmother do very professorial things, like when a storm would come, she would look up at the sky and she would command the wind to stop. She would also say this, he is God all by himself. And I never really understood the intention of what my grandmother was saying, perhaps until this conversation with Bishop, that oftentimes that in a battle, we understand that God is usually on the side of the winner. But actually, we see something different occurring here, that winning is not about the side you choose, but actually putting your choice back on God choosing you. I think this passage helps us to understand how God understands himself in the context of both battle and victory. It is easy for us to assume that God is always for the winner and against the loser. But a response helps us to really understand how God sometimes and oftentimes departs from our lines of thinking. In response to the questions, whose side are you on? Are you for us or for the enemy's camp? This was the reply, upon neither the one nor the other. I am not on your side. You are on mine. 
for I am captains of the Lord's hosts. I am come up. And I think what that means to me is that we believe we have to choose sides. And what God offers is the ability to choose him. Let's talk about your journey. We're, we're going to talk about faith at the intersection of politics today. And you actually are versed in many because not you not only situate, you're not only sort of versed in the theology of of what you preach and you give to churches, a, a black church, but you're also like always seeped into like the times and actually making sure that you actually understand the word and its relevancy to today and its people. Right. Let's talk right. about how right. you got into ministry. You and your, and Lady Smith, graduates of fam, you and you're back yeah. in Tuscaloosa and something yeah. happens and you go from like sitting in the pew to actually holding the mic. I'm a fourth generation uh, preacher pastor. I am fourth generation Pentecostal um, preacher pastor, although I don't preach what I would term to be a denominational church. That foundation has already always been there. And not only that, mixed with that, that foundational faith structure, I was also a, a child of those who, of two parents that were, and grandparents that were very active in the civil rights movement. And so there's always been this meshing, there's always been this awareness, this consciousness of how faith and and society with regards to empowering uh, and addressing culture has always been prevalent in my life since a little boy that I can remember. I've always understood, Tony, that you know, good good preaching, a good pastor, a good prophetic preaching is having the Bible in one hand and having a newspaper in the other and not allowing the newspaper to determine the Bible, but, but allowing the Bible to understand how it is to address what is going on in the newspaper so, so that we can all be established in present truth. Um, I believe that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And I believe that Jesus also knows how to speak the language to the culture so that the culture can understand what its primary place is in God's heart and purpose. And, and social justice, um, um, caring for the poor, um, making sure that, again, there is equality for all people and whatever iteration of life that they find themselves in um, without, without judgment um, is very important. I think the problem that we have is, is that we've used, for Republicans, they've used faith not to, 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 to help shape culture people afraid of the culture, right? So the problem with that is, is that for black people in particular, right? Even if you're talking about black Democrats, white Democrats, even if you're talking about that. See, so there's a God of the black Democrat and there's a God of the white Democrat. So when you deal with God in that iteration, white people in and of themselves have never had to struggle for their humanity. They've never had to struggle for liberation in this country, right? They may have, they have may have to struggle for economic gain, perhaps, or, you know, to start a business or, you know, but, but for their sheer dignity, the dignity and the character of the human, the value of their person, they have never had to apply and believe God for that. What Bishop is saying is profound. Part of the problem we have is that the Republicans have used their faith to make people afraid of the changes that come along with a democratic society. So they've used their faith not only to shape culture, but also to make people afraid of culture. And we can see a myriad of problems that come with this. But for Black people in particular, there becomes a God of the Black Democrat and God of the White Democrat. 
When you deal with God in that iteration, you realize there was never a struggle for white folks. They never had to struggle for their liberation in this country. They may have had to struggle for economic gain, perhaps, or to start a business. But for sheer dignity and value of a person, they never had to turn to God for freedom. And this is the distinction of the democratic God. He fights for the humanity of his people. Well, uh, they could believe God for the American dream. They could believe God for all of these other, other things that, you know, whatever they believe God for. But black people, um, we have to we have believe that God made us people because in this country we weren't deemed to be people by both the Democratic and Republican God, right? So, so our, our viewpoint of how we use and apply faith to societal politics and cultural shaping is different because we're always going to have a tinge of liberation to what we say. So if our God is not liberating, if our God is not freeing, if our God is not looking out for the indigent and the poor, if our God is not um, not just healing the sick, but providing health care, if, if our God is not just, you know, wisdom and knowledge, but he's not a God that believes in the education of all men, that it should be equal, right? Let's go back to the morning after the election. Remember that feeling? I vividly remember trying to reconcile the aspects of my life and answer the questions that were vexing me those days after Donald Trump was elected were like a constant state of confusion. On the one side, I woke up to text messages trying to console my friends. Many of us were thinking, this isn't what I prayed for. Why did this happen? We expected to wake up the next morning and see that Hillary Clinton had won and we were going to have an additional four years of progress, right? Clearly didn't happen. Then I creep back on to social media. I'm scrolling through Instagram and I start seeing memes. I remember one meme in particular. It was a picture of white Jesus carrying suitcases in both of his arms. And he was running back into the White House as to symbolize God wasn't there before. And Donald Trump's election was a moment of shifting, not only in the political realm, but also in a religious context. Folks like Paula White and other Republican Christian community leaders were seeing hope in ways I did in 2008 when Obama was elected. So now you understand my full state of confusion and anger and why I needed to have a blatant conversation with God. At the time, I was taking in what had become two different ideologies of God, both influencing political movements within America. I turned to Bishop to ask, how did this happen? And what does it do to people? A lot of our, a lot of our African American even uh, people are tra- are are migrating to those particular uh, multicultures, multi expressions is what I call them. Um, in terms of, I don't want to always hear of fighting. I don't want to always hear of spiritual warfare. I don't want to always hear of that. I don't right. want to always hear about binding the devil. I don't want to always hear about that. I want to go over there where Jesus is my friend. This is what I want to go to. I don't want to always have the context of struggle. Right. And that is good. Yeah. Multi-expression churches. What happens is, is that a lot of times our, our people migrate over there. People migrate there because of the friendliness, because right. they get to they get for a moment to walk in of utopia that this, you know, we don't discuss race. Everybody is just a part of the kingdom of God, red and yellow, black and white. 
we are all precious in the sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. And we understand that. And if you live in that culture and if you live in that church forever, that could exist. Problem is, is that then when you say the benediction, the Hispanic, the Caucasian, the African-American, the Asian have to go out into a culture that is predominantly white, whitely supreme or whitely privileged, right? And so, you know, I don't care how Pastor Stan, Brother Stan looks at you in, you know, Garden, Garden Community Church, when you get outside of that church and you get stopped by police, then the structures, the structures say something different. Now, here's the problem. When you come back to church, they're going to teach you of Romans 13, that all authorities are ordained by God and the police is our friend and all of these, the judges are our friends and all that. No, the judges are your friends because the judges culturally have the same, you know, Weltanschauung. They have the same worldview as you do. And so not when, not when I got to go back across and live on the West side, right? And even though you allow me to come to your church on the North side, I got to go back and deal with the reality. I might get stopped and might not make it home simply because of the color of my skin. Yes. And when you don't address that, when you're, it's, you're disingenuous. You, when you don't address my reality, my problem with the multi-expression churches is that they do not address the reality of the society that white supremacy and privilege aided and abetted by Western Christianity has created. Exactly. I mean, and that's that's the white conservative and the white liberal. You know, when the preacher says, watch this, a good word is about to come. That was always a moment of revelation for me. What Bishop said takes us back to the American Value Survey. And let's look at it differently this time. In the previous episodes, God is Republican, we looked at this particular data point. It says 51% of people in American society today believe that our culture has changed for the worse. 48% of those hope to return to a society reminiscent of the 1950s, a time when it wasn't necessarily easy in America for Black folks. We noted here that the group that had the dimmest view of our culture was white evangelical Protestants. Here's what I want you to take away from this and what I'm sure they know is that your position in privilege, your social status, your economic standing is essentially your image of God and his blessings. If our existences are unequal in society, how do you magically make them equal in the pulpit? Well, you do it by simply being silent and looking away, saying that we're all the same and espousing a theology that supports that. Personally, what I had learned was that there was a part of me being ignored. One could see me as a person, but you weren't able to see my race, gender, and the struggle that I had to confront on a daily basis. So when it came to black and brown bodies lying in the streets, Due to structural and institutional violence in our communities, Black churches were stepping up for the fight, and white churches were silent. That's a purchased silence. And what I mean by that is that they've got constituencies that they cannot afford to, and I mean that in a literal sense, they cannot afford to offend, right? Because part of their mega, part of their mega does not, a lot of their mega rather, does not come from the African-American or all those other people that they let in. Part of that is that there are a group of people, evangelical and based, who have pulled their money together to create these significant, tremendous movements and 
And so we've got to, in some part and parcel, keep this atmosphere very calm and very, very, uh, very vanilla, very, you know, um, keep it very church, keep it very um, almost self-helpish, keep it very TED Talkish, right? Um, where we're all just coming to learn about God, right? But not how God himself into society. The view that we're talking about is God and society. When we talk about Jesus, he is God and society. Right. It was the word made flesh and dwelt among us, right? And so the son is, only, is the only one that has image in the Godhead, right? And so God released him as an expression of how God would do in society. So when we talk about what would Jesus do, we, we know what he would do. The problem is, is that what Jesus would do does not line up with the Western cultural Christianity, conservative ideology that we've set up in America that makes us, that makes one group better, more knowledgeable than the other. That's the problem. So even when you tell, like you had Paula White when the, the, uh, talking about immigrants and they said, well, Jesus was, uh, and an immigrant, and he was. Oh, well, Jesus wasn't an immigrant. Yes, he was, but if he was an immigrant, he didn't come in illegally. So they were trying. They were trying to do all kinds of genuflections and all kind of all kind of you know crazy stuff, so that they could still maintain the image of Jesus being the, the the poster child for their supremacist Christian value, right? And so so they could otherize at this particular time Hispanics. But at no time has what have white people been otherized in this country. So they don't even understand how Jesus would not be even for a whole lot of this. When we look at God and what he cares about, we start to get a more radical conception of Jesus and the role in living a more righteous life. We've always known that there's a cultural side of church that inspires our political views and affiliations. But as we dig deeper into the subject matter of church, it also leans into our personal relationship with God. God being omniscient, omnipresent, the one who comes to see about his children, we are inclined to think about God as the one who comes to us. And when we take that approach to the gospel, we can now hold ourselves more accountable in our faith journey to not only hold that God view, but to actually do things that otherwise we could be complacent in, overlook, or even people in communities we can disregard. And that way we move ourselves in God's word and truly look out for thy neighbor. Jesus is showing that that it is not the ethnic or the racial or the color difference that makes one your neighbor. It is the consciousness of compassion that resides in your heart for a brother that finds himself in a place of fallenness or in a place of deficit or in a place where he is in need of some serious help. The Bible says that they that he, he fell among thieves and left them for dead. And the problem with that is, is that America is both the priest, the Levite, and the thief that the, the Jericho, the man on the Jericho road fell among. But they very rarely pick up the character, the good Samaritan. And that is the tragedy. That is, is that how can you be so, how can you be so, you know, so spiritual and be the priest? How can you be so attending to quote unquote, the things of God? And then you also be thief, the thieves of the, the, the thief of people, because those same Hispanics that you, you rob them, the same Hispanics that you, 
deported, you rob you rob them of their labor, you rob them of their wages, you use their labor, you threaten them with, and, and, and you you use them to pull, pull your harvest so that you can make big money while paying them little to nothing. And then when it's not convenient, you hear a report that there's going to be by 2040 uh, uh, overwhelming drowning of America. And then you get a, a bigot racist person to sit in to do your bidding. Now you are the thief of that person. When is America going to rise to be the good Samaritan that puts that man on their, on their beat and put him in an end and tells the person when they get well, whatever they owe you. Whatever they owe you, put it on my charge. You know why? Because we are a prosperous country. You know why? Because we billionaires. Right? Because we are we we want these people to not live. We understand the creed of why people want to come to America, right? It is always funny that the forefathers of those who came to this country came illegally, that there were already people here, but the people right. that were already here embraced them. And and they and they killed them and gave those people diseases. But those people, the, the Native Americans, uh, the Native people, uh, the indigenous people, embraced them. That is something. But when other people want to come in, then you make laws, right, to protect again the, your privilege, to protect your bigotry, your racism, and your otherization. So the first thing I think God is is is, is really concerned about is the humanity. Because if you don't really sincerely believe in the humanity of every man, you cannot introduce him to a savior. You cannot preach the gospel. Because if nothing else, God sent Jesus for the world, for people, for a fallen humanity. And when you take away the humanity of people, you also say that they are not deserving of Jesus. And that's a critical problem that I believe that is affecting American society as it relates to what is on God's mind. The second thing I think is this whole issue of equality and equity. God accepts people, and especially through Jesus Christ, accepts people in whatever iteration that they come in. All of us come with a particular iteration. Jesus is able to sit with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but he is also able to sit with the sinners and the wine-bibbers and still not lose this context of everybody's dignity to giving everybody a future. His thing is go and sin no more, right? He says, and he is, watch this, and this is powerful because he's Jesus. But when he kisses that woman in the, in the act of adultery, he says, where are your accusers? She says, Lord, there are none. He says, neither do I. I'm not accusing you. Who's condemning you? He says, neither do I condemn you. He, she said, he, all he says is go, go to your future and sin no more. Shoot, make better life decisions, right? And I think when we as people, particular particular faith or denominational idea or ideology or even a perspective of theology and become judge and jury of other people's uh, life decisions without even understanding their journey, without even understanding their heart, without even understanding who they are in terms of the significance that they bring to society, that all you could do is look at my morality, my orientation. All you can do is look at my color. All you can do is look at my gender. All you can do is don't. When you try to localize me to those things to fit in your box of prescribed hate, then you are not God. So I believe that the equality, not just the, the humanity, but also the equality of all human life is essentially important to God. Finally, I believe that God cares about the poor and those who are sick and diseased. The Bible says Jesus went about doing well. He went about healing the sick. He went about diseases. He went about making certain that, that the poor had, 
He even addressed the poor, the poor you should have with you always, and that you should take care of the poor. The old Bible says that, the new Bible says that, Old Testament, New Testament. It, God's heart is concerned with the welfare of everyone, the welfare of everyone. Now, we understand that uh, that we live under men, men ascribe laws that create wealth in one region so that, you know, because you can't really have uh, wealth in one region in terms of capital capitalistic understanding wealth in one region without there being created poverty let me say that again without there being created poverty in another in another part of the city. so you know this part of the city has all of the prime stuff because another part of the city does not have it right and so when we start talking about and really this is what is a, what appears the american conservative christian white and even some black and hispanic who have adopted it's their pocketbook. It's really not race. It has always been about how does this shift the wealth? How does this shift the, the substance? Because how, how does this shift the money, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and once we understand that human lives are taking an economic, has, have taken a net economic value, we might ascribe race to it because it is, um, but actually it's about economics i don't want i don't want tony to prosper because if tony prospers then my child may not prosper i don't want tony to go to harvard because that's one seat that my undeserving child (laughs) educationally is not going to be able to have affirmative action because it's going to disenfranchise me i don't believe in letting them barbecue in the park because it's going to take space for me and my family when we want to barbecue Right. So I'm going to I'm going to call the police on the little boy who is selling water. So because I don't want him taking money away from my baby who's on the corner selling lemonade without a permit. Right. So it's it's, it's this, and, and, and they'll hear that. They'll, they'll, they'll hear the otherization from the pulpit coming from those people uh, and make it thinking that God is sanctioning it. But no, God believes in the full humanity of everyone that he created. Number two, he believes in the full equality of that humanity for everyone that he created. And he also believes in the full well-being. I hear the entire audience listening to this saying, preach, Bishop. Preach, Bishop. <laughs> Preach. <laughs> but you actually, right. you help us, Bishop, sort of see the, the Republican and the conservative faith for sort of like, in, like truly what it is in, in terms of saying like, you cannot actually go and sit in a pew and create a watered down version of God and um, Jesus, his representative in the earth saying that, Jesus just came to just do things as normal when Jesus was actually, his ministry speaks to him actually not only being upfront and direct about issues, but him being radical to the traditions that people were holding at that particular time. You see Jesus, anything, talking in parables, because what he was trying to do is actually saying, you got to seek the kingdom one, and you got to actually understand that the kingdom is not what y'all are doing. Growing up in the black church, if it was one thing that I knew, it was that we would focus on the poor and the downtrodden. We were going to fight for each other. We were gonna love each other. We were gonna be slain in the spirit, clap our hands, go down to the altar to be redeemed. And after the benediction, we were gonna walk to the fellowship hall to eat. 
and not just any ordinary food, but the best food in the city. But the black church in its evolution has disregarded some people and is learning to find ways to reconcile with these communities. For a long time, women in particular were not recognized for their ministry and their giftings and were not allowed to even sit in the pulpit. We've since moved into a space where they're not just an alto in the choir or ladies with the big hats, but they are called just as equally to minister and edify the body. One community that has been tougher for the church to reconcile was obviously the LGBTQ community. Very few will stand out and say, we know you are here, you are gifted, and you can serve in ministry. They used our gifts but ignored us. There was no confrontation with or reconciliation of how does Jesus hold a view for all and deal with people and their lifestyles. We heard the sermons of how a minister would take Sodom and Gomorrah and then make it a platform to ostracize and exclude people, not just from the church, but from meeting their spiritual needs. And these people weren't just strangers. They were our neighbors, our brothers, our aunties, people who wanted and deserved a savior just like us. This is much deeper than an LGBTQ issue because this is actually a proxy for how you replicate inequality in any space. The first thing is I make you inhumane, which leads me to refusing to see you. What happens to a generation of believers who internalize that Jesus died on the cross for everyone except for them? You know, actually, I'm teaching on this now in a series called The Zoo in the Room, and that was one of the things that I talked about yesterday. And I, I used the past Genesis chapter number seven, and I read from seven to about ten. And one of the commandments that, that the command that God gave him, that one, he says, first of all, I want you and your family, your sons and your wives, y'all go in the ark. The second thing I want you to do is I want you to get seven pair of clean animals and I want you to bring them in. Then he says, I want you to get one pair of unclean animals mm -hmm. because I intend to save the clean and the unclean. I need both the clean and the unclean in the ark and I'm going to save them both. And, and, the, and that word unclean there, is, is not that there is something filthy about them, but according to the law, um, or according to what would be the law, this predates the Mosaic law. Um, it was how they ate. It was, it was about how they ate. It was about their feet, and it was about all of that, right? And, and you know, we get into the, all those Levitical laws. And then I parallel that to what, um, in the book of Acts, when the canopy, Peter had the vision, and the canopy came down with all of those unclean animals. And, Peter, and, and, the, and the voice of the Lord said, rise, Peter, slain and eat. And Peter said, eat with that, 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 I'm not, I've never eaten unclean thing. How, how, can you, how can you call unclean what I have cleaned, right? And then the scripture says the canopy goes back into heaven. He's preparing Peter's mind to deal with the unclean people, which were the Gentiles, which were in every single thing, Right. And of course, we understand Peter failed egregiously because he is he was like a whole lot of people in church. I'm going somewhere. And that was Peter had no problem functioning with the Gentiles in private. Wow. But he had an issue acknowledging his relationship with them and connection with them when he got to the temple. And when all that, Paul said, No, wait now, what we're not gonna do is if you're gonna respect them in the what we call secular space, 
if you're going to do business with them, if you're going to use them, if you're going to be drinking with them, if you're going to be eating with them in the secular space, then don't come over here in the temple space and act like they're human. Paul said that they came to a big fisticuff, came to a fist fight about that. That's where we always be regards to the LGBT community. Don't tell me they're good enough to write your gospel music. Don't tell me that they're good enough to do your hair and put their hands in your head and arch your eyebrows. Don't tell me that they're good enough to administrate your churches and and and, and on your music organ. Don't even tell me good enough to to babysit your kids and all that kind of stuff. But you won't see the full their full humanity when it comes time for them to operate or to to mobilize in in the space where we can even fathom that they would be anointed, that we can fathom that they would be incredibly gifted and are used of God in a particular space. Let's go to scripture. Genesis chapter 7, verses 2 and 3. It says this, Take with you seven pairs of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and one pair of every kind of unclean animal, again, a male and its mate, and also seven pairs of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep the various kinds alive throughout the earth. But what does this mean? So what you're telling me is, is that God can use a hoeing preacher that's got a wife and a side piece, a couple of them, but he is anointed to travel the country. And this man who, or, or who, who is faithful to this other person who happens to, do, to, to be in this situation uh, in, in homosexual uh, uh, marriage, and, but he, he's got to sit back in the balcony and be obscure? How does that work? That's, that's duplicitous at best. Um, that's treachery at worst. And what it is, is he tells us, let everybody come. Because sometimes, but not sometimes, grace finds us before we find grace. My job is not to change anybody. My job is to preach the truth about how, how God can change them, one, if he so desires to change them. If he so, right. if he does, my job is not to judge. Now I believe God can change, and I believe God can deliver, and I am yeah. absolutely holy. I'm righteous. I believe in all of that, but I also believe that we've got to learn how to allow the Holy Spirit and God to do their work as we do the work of loving and speaking the truth in love. I don't have to call people out their names. I don't have to say things directly. And I've done that in my ministry because of my, my upbringing early on in my pastorate. I've, I've dealt with people in that harsh, very dehumanizing way. And I had to go back and repent. And I repented to them personally. And I repented to my congregation. I did what I was known, what I knew to do, not what the Bible says, but that's how my, my granddad preached. That's how the people, the old the guys who I was around preached. But then I found out that they had situations going in the too. Okay, well then let's do this. Let us all, let God be true and everybody be a liar and let's all just serve God and let's all love each other. My mama didn't see it. Now my pastor couldn't address it. And what they wanted from me was this articulate guy who was powerful who was intellectual, and who could hold space for just about anyone. While I showed up for everyone else, I was hurting, if not dying, inside. There wasn't a single space for most of my life that fully accepted or affirmed who I was. I didn't have space because of the disparities in our communities. I didn't have access to mental health services, and it was already too much to even think about. There was barely enough, at times, food on the table. And I didn't want to think about it, let alone burden anyone else with it. We never started a conversation between religious leaders and parishioners in the pulpit to just say, I see you. 
I love you, and so does God. Yes, the ministry is here to lay hands and to help us become convicted in our walk, but we're doing this to sit down face to face and to pull you into the gospel. Yes, the ministry is here to lay hands and to help us to become convicted in our walk, but all of this must fit into the container of relationship to be face in face with the people who actually serve as our ministry leaders. I think about myself and my journey to self-acceptance, at times thinking that if I could choose to be straight on day one, I would have been better off. I'm already black, poor, and a first-generation college student. Why would I put myself behind even further? For a long time, my mother told me I was like Paul and I had a thorn in my flesh. She didn't have the language or the framework to really understand all of what her son was going through. For people like me who have prayed the gay away and done everything to seek their full atonement, you still have this perception of God that he doesn't like you. How then do you establish a relationship with your father, a deity that can only tolerate you? How then do you bring people into the church? How do you convey that you're okay this is what's happening. This is how God sees you and take it from there. I, I, because again, I'm a part of I've been a church all my life. So I definitely know what you're talking about. I, I'm a part of the gospel music industry. So therefore I definitely, definitely know what you're talking about. Um, I'm a part of the preacher society and quiet as it's kept. I definitely, definitely know what you're talking about. Why is it important to me to know who, to, to know who you are intimate with. You see what I'm saying? Why is, we, we first got to start asking various level of questions. And, and my thing is, is that you got to stratify before you can strategize, right? Because if you don't pick up the layers, the layers, a lot of people are, are deathly afraid, phobic of what they don't understand. Mm-hmm. That when they read the Bible, they think that, you know, uh, David was formed with a certain predilection. He speaks of it. He says, you know, um, I was conceived in sin. And, you know, I was shaped in iniquity. I, that was, I, I, have a, I was bent a certain way when I came out of the womb. I, I, didn't, I didn't wake up wanting to be this. I didn't wake up and say, hmm, you know, this is a good idea. I think I want to I be an adulterer today. That's not how people, that's not even how sin works, right? The thought of about it, you know, keeps, it, it, it's in my mind already. It, it is then the action because I feel like I have no other alternative. My other, my other nature takes over. My human nature takes over. When we don't have intellectual conversations about that, we are born with certain things. That man came, the crowd came to you and said, man, uh, Lord, who did sin? This man or his parents said he was born blind. And I think all of us are born with something mm-hmm. that, that we must encounter Jesus to help us with. And I'm born black. I'm born, I'm born, uh, uh, you know, born short. I'm born, all of these things. They, I think when we take our sexuality out of salaciousness, because I think that's the problem, Tony, that heterosexuality is the norm, but homosexuality, um, and when we start putting hetero and homo on it and not just saying human sexuality, then that's another problem. Because once you start labeling and defining, you start creating perspective and perception. My job was to simply love you. My job was to simply to see greater. And, and if I can just be glib, if, 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 I mean, uh, and direct, 
there's something greater than who Tony goes home to sleep with. There, he's got value in the kingdom. He's got value to God. Um, his, my, my job is to love him, tell him the truth. If he asks me, asks me a question, what does God say about something? It's my job to tell him what God says. Not right. what L says, not what Bishop Smith says, but here's what God says. And I think even if we would begin to tell people what God says, what God says, it would help them so much to embrace, of the first of all, the value of themselves. Number two, the thorn that they have in the flesh, um, they, that they make that God may never change. He just may never change. Yeah. And what we deem to be unclean, what we deem to be unclean, watch this, what we deem to be unclean, he sovereignly has cleansed. And he says, let them in the ark. That is perspective. I think the thing that, um, to, to your point in the, the connection that I've always had with Bishop Smith is that um, he's acknowledged like his arc in terms of how we grew up in the, in the Kojic church, but also saying that, again, there's a way that you can pray that God changes you. And then there's a space that you actually create space to say, I know the runway for my current thoughts and belief. Uh, they have an expiration date and that I have to actually yeah. activate uh, through yeah. my own self-discipline practices, a new way of practicing uh, mm-hmm. what you call the conscious of compassion. How do we actually, right. when you, you sort of like forecast out and visit the future um, and we're wow. eavesdropping on the church, um, what do you see for the church? We can make, um, predictions around like, oh, people are leaving and all this kind of stuff, but I just don't believe that. I believe that um, what we've had is big, but what God does is bigger. Um, what we've Absolutely. had is like amazing, but eyes have not seen, ears have not heard. And Absolutely. so if I actually anticipate a move of God, then I have to actually say better is yet to come. How do you Absolutely. how do you how do you see um, when you when you're thinking about that, Bishop, and your for your own ministry and for a world and a global view? What's next for the body? I believe that um, God is allowing us. The church is allowing is beginning to embrace um, again, like I said, the full humanity and to understand all of our needs for grace, all of our needs for mercy, all of our needs for getting people back to authentic relationship with God ultimately creating a space to where people can walk with the voice of God to hear God for themselves. So that, you know, Adam was assured of his identity, as I taught for years, Adam was assured of his identity by walking with the voice of God, not because of what somebody else told him, but because of what God said about him. And when we introduce people to to that voice of God and, and turn them on, Eli, Samuel, Samuel is here to the voice of God. He goes to Eli. He said, Master, did you call me? He says, no, I didn't. Samuel goes back to sleep. He says, again, Samuel, Samuel, he goes to Eli again and says, Eli, did you call me? Eli says, no, I didn't call you. But then Eli got a perception. And Eli says, it must be the Lord's voice calling him. And Eli gave him instruction. He says, the next time that voice calls you, you say, speak, Lord, thy servant heareth." That's a powerful thing. Because what Eli did was he removed himself from the conscious space of Samuel's ability to hear God. That I don't need God just to sound like me to you. I need God to sound like him to you and whatever iteration that is. That's a fearful thing for pastors and leaders in the church because in some instances, we, we fear that it's going to take people away from us 
and lead them on to their way. They don't need pastors anymore. Well, as long as God has given them, folks are going to need them. Right. Um, mm-hmm. But I think the next thing is to mature people to hear God on another level and another plane that they've never heard him before. In the future, I believe the church looks younger. I believe the church still fights with dogma because there's a younger generation that still perpetuates the dogma because there are some younger people that want to be like the old fathers when in, when in fact that's not their mission. Um, but that they uphold, that's what they want to be. They live, they've lived growing up trying to be old. And then they, when they become old, they will be old, right? <laughs> um, but I believe that there is a generation that is unfettering itself from the church, traditional church, church ethic and tradition um, and preaching a, a clear uh, gospel that provides for the humanity. Um, I believe that God is not, I spoke this in church yesterday, um, that God is giving uh, the church a new technology to deal with the present time that you know an rca tv from 76 still might cut on but it doesn't match the technology so it's not going to be able to pick up the frequencies of 2018. nothing is wrong with that tv if you're still in 76 but functioning in a 2018 so i've got to give you got to go with the new technology to get on the frequency of where god is exposing himself as God begins to grow the church and put us more in the forefront and, and in the marketplace and really provide a space in the culture to, to not just be temple bound, but be to see the sacredness in both the temple and the marketplace, then we're going to be able to spread the gospel like never before. And the church said, amen. You know, for most of us, we've been in quarantine, hibernating, and the type of seclusion that can make you feel like you're going stir crazy. And if that wasn't enough, you turn on the news, read social media, you go to your text thread and you discover, it seems like every day, every other day, a new situation that takes a toll on us physically, mentally, emotionally, and definitely spiritually. So much to the fact you've got a question, what's going on? God, do you know about this stuff? And have I been left behind, Black Jesus? It can often feel that way, that these things are not supposed to be happening or unfolding in the way that we are experiencing them if God was really in control. But Bishop Smith allows us to be more astute, more mature in our faith, to know that God is sovereign and he uses everything that we experience in our life. So I started doing this in the morning. I put my Bible next to the news sources and I started anticipating how God was showing up even in the areas where I can least anticipate him. Before I end today, I want you to do something for me. I want you to go to the space where maybe you lost belief or to the situation that looks like it's against you or us. And I want you to anticipate how might God be there. Until next time, thank you for listening to The Promised Land.